when um, I, I, uh, the summer, excuse me, of my junior year, uh, I was called into ministry, and uh, a few months later while I was in school, I was asked uh, by a group of teachers um, if I would nominate a teacher and then also speak on why I felt like this teacher should be uh, Teacher of the Year for National Honor Society. So I was pretty excited uh, to be able to give this talk or this speech. Uh, I figured that as somebody who was called in the ministry that you would have to do some public speaking every once in a while. And I had a teacher in mind uh, that I, I wanted to nominate. I had had this teacher in middle school for math, and then as we moved up into high school, she had gotten a, a job in the high school at that same time. Well, uh, since she was kind of the low man on the totem pole, she also had to be the class advisor and had to work with the class and, and kind of help the class um, as they moved through their next four years. Well, I was class president, and so I worked closely with uh, Miss Keating on a regular basis, and I had her for class again for another math class while I was in high school. And so I had her in class. I enjoyed her. Uh, she was very helpful to me and many of my friends, and so I decided that I was going to nominate her to be like teacher of the year, and I was going to be able to give a, a speech and, and just let everybody know how great she was and how helpful she had been, because we had had like the best flow every year. We had had a lot of class participation in the different things that we were trying to do. We were very good at, at raising money, and I, I mean, we were just, right, the class of 2004 was just the best class ever anyways, um, and she was the advisor. Well, I got to know her a little bit, and uh, to be honest, um, I got to know her husband. Her husband was everything that I wasn't. Uh, he was tall, blonde, handsome, super athletic. He had a full ride to West Virginia as a quarterback. Um, and so just this really cool guy that I admired. I would, get, I would go out and ride four-wheelers with him and, and just hang out occasionally. Uh, and so when I'm giving my talk, and I'm talking about Miss Keating, I'm, I, I'm wanting to like, let everybody know that she's been, she's been more than a teacher, that, that she's been like this, this friend, um, which I felt like was, was pretty cool for a high school student to become like friends with their teachers and their spouses and just to see their lives outside of class, I just thought was, was really awesome. Well, as a junior in high school who had never really done any public speaking, when I tried to let everybody know that Mrs. Keating was uh, more than a teacher, she was a friend, it came out like this. We are more than friends. <laughs> now, Miss Keating was uh, kind of young. She was married to a Division I athlete. And so you can imagine that uh, Miss Keating was, she was pretty. And I had no idea what I said, and I just kept going, and everybody laughed just like you did. I got to the end of uh, my speech, and I, I walked off, and my friends are sitting there laughing, and they go, Josh, do you realize what you said? They could tell I hadn't, because I was not laughing with anybody else, and I had no idea what had gone on. <laughs> and so they whispered while the other person was nominating their teacher, do you realize you just said that you and Miss Keating were more than friends in front of everyone, in front of teachers, administration, people's dads. And I said, no, and I wanted to hide. Afterwards, I had dads coming up to me just saying, Josh, you're lucky that Miss Keating's husband wasn't here today. 
I could not wait to get out of that room because I was utterly humiliated. And to be honest, as I even look back at that now, I was completely humbled. Have you ever, have you ever been humbled? Right? Have you ever been humiliated? Uh, one of the things that humiliation does is it kind of brings us down a little lower in the eyes of others. Uh, many of us just think of it as, as an embarrassing moment, and of course that was an embarrassing moment uh, for me. Uh, but really what it just needs to do every once in a while is just kind of humble us, bring us down to earth. Uh, maybe you were wrong about something. Maybe you had failed at something. Maybe you said something that you wish you hadn't. Maybe uh, your kids said something you wish they hadn't, that they heard from you. Perhaps it's a failed relationship. Right? Well, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, and uh, he's really just kind of on top of the world. People are shouting, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. And uh, he rides in like a savior. He's treated like a savior. But it doesn't take long for Jesus to be humiliated, to him, for him to be brought down in the eyes of the people who were cheering for him and clapping for him and praising for him. Today we're talking about the cross. And when we look at the cross, what we discover right away is that Jesus is humiliated for our sake. It begins with Jesus being betrayed by a friend. Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? We're told here in Matthew 26, 14, as it tells us about Jesus' betrayal here, it says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to, they sought an opportunity to betray him. You see, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem here, he's not a hero to everybody, and there are people who want Jesus dead, and one of his friends decides to turn Jesus in to the chief priest. Now, the reason that Matthew here starts this sentence with one of the twelve is he wants us to see the depths of the betrayal. One of the twelve is one of the twelve men that had lived with Jesus for three years, who had been one of Jesus' best friends, who had seen everything Jesus had done. Jesus had helped provide for him. Jesus had helped take care of him. Jesus had loved him. This man had walked with Jesus in a way that would have portrayed that he had loved Jesus. And yet what we discover here is that Judas is going to turn Jesus in. He's going to lead these men to Jesus kind of in the midst of darkness when other people aren't around and Jesus is pretty much utterly unprotected except by the other 11 to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver is roughly about four months worth of wages. Now can you imagine one of your best friends turning you over to somebody to be killed and crucified for about four months worth of their wages. This is what's taken place. Jesus is betrayed by a friend and he's given to the chief priest. He's given to people that presumably worship the same God that he worships, who believes basically the same things that he, he believes that at, at death, like God is going to restore you and you're gonna live a resurrected life. He believes that there's only, these people believe that there's only one true God and the Messiah will come. These are the people who betray Jesus and are going to make sure that he gets to the cross. Now, if you're Jesus and just a week earlier had ridden in, in and on a donkey and kind of, you're on 
cloud nine and people are shouting your praises at this point when you're getting turned in by a friend and you're being rejected by everybody that's in your church, right? You can just imagine like the whispers that are going on now in the community. Well, he must not have really been as great as everybody thought he was if one of his closest friends would turn him in. If the people who lead in our churches and our synagogues don't believe that this man is really who he says he is, should, should I believe him? Should I follow him? Should we get behind him? Now, Jesus was God, and so he knew what was going, on, going to go on, but he's also a man. Right? You know what it's like to be betrayed, like this inner suffering that takes place, this inner doubt, this pain. Jesus isn't just suffering pain on the inside, and he's not just going to suffer inner turmoil and pain, but Jesus is going to suffer publicly too here. He's going to be humiliated publicly. This is what the cross is all about. When we think about Jesus going to the cross, Jesus just isn't going and facing any type of punishment here. Jesus is going to be crucified, and he is going to go to the place in which, in which, people are made an example of. The cross was reserved for the worst criminals. The cross was there so that people, when they walked by these people being executed on the crosses, that they could be reminded of not to break Roman law because this could be your fate. It was there to present and deter all crime and was reserved for the worst of criminals. Before Jesus goes to the cross, they uh, tie him up to a pole and his hands on the pole and he would be bent over and they took a, basically a whip and they called it the cat of nine tails and uh, it had basically kind of nine tails that came off of it and then it had uh, uh, kind of little whips on the end of it or, or pieces on the end of it and when they whipped you and tore it, it basically like tear your flesh off of your back um, and so you could see the bone and you can see the muscle under there and they would beat you to the point of death. Uh, they would just keep you alive uh, enough so that you could carry the cross later. Like some of you, if you've seen, um, uh, you know, movies on slavery where people have been beaten and they show how their backs have just been torn off um, and these scars that remain. This is what is being done to Jesus at this time as they're prepping him for the cross. And so they have, they have this done. And Jesus is beaten to the point of death here, and he's bleeding. And what the men do then, uh, who are beating Jesus, who specialize in this sort of corporal punishment, they walk up to Jesus, and they put a crown of thorns on his head. Not only do, do they do that, but then they put a purple robe on him, and they begin to mock Jesus and say, hey, if you really are a king of the Jews, right, why don't you stop this? Pilate then brings Jesus out. He is the one o- overlooking all of this, and he asks the people, what should I do with this man? Are you sure this needs to continue? And what they scream is crucify him. So Pilate decides to. Jesus' job at this point would be to move from the courthouse 
to the place in which he's going to be crucified. And so they would have given him a part of the cross to carry. They placed it on Jesus' back, but Jesus was too weak to carry it after the beating. And so a man named Simon has to carry Jesus' cross as Jesus walks publicly from the courthouse to the place of Golgotha, the place where he is going to be put on the cross. You can imagine him dehydrated, uh, lightheaded, um, and then looking around at everybody scorning at him as he walks to the cross. When he gets to the place of the cross, they lay him down on the beams. They would have put a nail around this area of his wrist here and put him on the cross and then crossed his legs and put it through his ankles and foot area while he was laying down on the ground. They then would have lifted the cross up for everyone to see. You can just imagine the pain that Jesus went through as the nails were pierced through his wrists and through his feet. When you're suspended up on the cross, you can't breathe because you're hanging like this. And so your arms pulling up and your lungs going down, your diaphragm squeezes your lungs so you're unable to breathe. And so the only way to breathe is to push up where your feet are nailed to the cross and where your arms are nailed in is to pull on those nails that have gone through your flesh and bones and tendons. And so every so often, he would have had to pull up just to breathe. To embarrass him further, Jesus wasn't the only one there that day on that hill. There were two criminals placed on each side of him. We see this here in Matthew 27. It says, there, Then the two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and then one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. So Jesus was killed as a common criminal, as a common robber. They, they wanted Jesus to be utterly embarrassed. And as people saw Jesus here, they mocked him, they spit on him. The guards at Jesus' feet, at the foot of the cross, uh, it's recorded that what they did is they began to cast lots. They began to play a game at the foot of the cross because they wanted to see who was going to get that purple robe that they put on him and that crown of thorns. And so they're playing dice to see who gets to win this prize of the garbs that Jesus is wearing. We know that as Jesus is on the cross, his mother Mary was present, watching her son suffer, the one that she told was going to be the Savior of the world, who was the Son of God, who was born miraculously in a stable. You can only imagine Jesus looking down on her as she looked up at her son. You can think of the horror that she is going through. Think of the sights. Think of what that sounds like of a mother watching her son. Think about the pain of a son looking down at, her mother, at his mother. Jesus is hanging there while all of this is going on. And eventually, before he takes his last breath, he says, it is finished. And then Jesus dies. 
Now why? What's going on? Jesus dying on the cross is Jesus finishing up God's plan. Jesus goes to the cross and he suffers all of this even though he knows or Jesus went to the cross knowing that this was going to happen. Jesus chose to go to the cross. When we look at this kind of in relation to the scriptures and the Bible and and what's going on and the pain that he suffered, one of the things that I want to point out is that Jesus chose to die. Jesus knew that this was going to happen and Jesus knew that this was part of God's plan. Jesus knew that it was going to be difficult. This is why Jesus prays in the garden. God, Father, if you can, take this cup from me. I don't want to go through this. But if it be your will, let me continue it. Some of us are confused, perhaps, by that. Like, does Jesus not really want to do it? Of course, he wanted to do it. But just like all of us, he would never want to go through anything that caused that much pain, that caused that much hurt. But what we see in Jesus going to the cross is we see an example of his love and a reflection of his character. You know what that's like. You've all done things that you know, I really don't want to go through this, but I'm going to do this because it's the right thing to do and I love the person in which I'm doing it for. It was God's will for Jesus to die on the cross. Jesus knew this when he's arrested. What happens is that Judas brings the men to Jesus to arrest Jesus, and as they show up and go to arrest Jesus, Peter takes out his sword, and he goes, actually, and he's ready to fight the guards. He actually cuts off a man's ear, if you've read through the story. And as he cuts off the man's ear, Jesus looks at Peter, and he puts the ear back on the man, and he heals the man, and he tells Peter and everybody there, he said, if I wanted to stop this, I could, I could call out a thousand angels, and I could stop this without you. But then he goes on and he tells the people why he went to the cross. And here's what he has to say. Matthew 26, 56, he says, All of this has taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus is telling them that, hey, I'm getting ready to go to the cross. I'm going to die so that the Bible might be true. So that you might see what God is doing throughout history. Jesus is telling them, I left heaven to die. Jesus is telling them that, hey, I'm going to be the suffering servant. I'm going to be the one that the prophet Isaiah had been talking about. I want to show you what Jesus means in Isaiah 53, 5 and 10. This is who Jesus thought he was, and this is what Jesus believed was happening. Jesus believes that he is the one who was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, and beaten so that we can be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. Now Jesus believed that he was this person that was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 53, that the suffering servant would come and he would deliver the people. Jesus here on the cross, and before he goes to the cross, he believes that this is who he is. He believes that this is what is happening. And what is taking place here is that God's plan 
is being lived out. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, that sin is passed down and, transfer, and, and transferred to all of us. We all suffer from sin nature. Sin nature separates us from God. The Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is a life apart from God. And God's plan here is to send Jesus and pay the debt that we owe God for turning our back on him and rebelling against him. In Isaiah, we are told that Jesus is made as a guilt offering. We stand guilty before God because we have sinned and we have rebelled against him. And Jesus is laying his life down and dying for us so that we do not have to face the death that we deserve. In Isaiah, what we are told here is that this suffering servant dies for our sins. Jesus is crushed for us. Jesus is crushed for you. Jesus is crushed for me. We see this in the narrative in Matthew. Pilate uh, brings Jesus out to the people and what Pilate tells um, the people, he's like, I'm not sure you guys really want to go through this. I'm not sure that, that Jesus here is, is really guilty of all the things that you are saying that he's guilty of. And so he's saying, I'm going to make a deal with you guys. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a Passover. And so what we'll do is to celebrate the Passover is we'll spare one of these criminals. And he brings out two criminals. He brings out Jesus, and he brings out a guy named Erasmus. And he says, on your request, I will either spare Jesus or I will spare Barasbus. And here's what takes place in Matthew 27, 25, and 25 and 26. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. In other words, crucify Jesus. We will be responsible for his death. Then they released for him for them, Barasbus, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now, Matthew here, who writes this gospel, wants you to see the irony in all of this. That the people are gladly cheering and want Jesus to go to the cross and die. They hate him that much. They are ready to get rid of him that so much that they would rather see him die on the cross. And they said, go ahead, let, it, let his blood be on us. The irony is here is they don't even realize that they need Jesus' blood to be on them. You see, the Passover represents a time where God saves the people of God by the lamb, by the blood of a lamb. If you remember back in Exodus, God is going to save the people from slavery in Egypt He's going to save those who have placed the blood, on the, lamb, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost here. And he's going to pass over all the homes. And those sons are not going to die. Those people are not going to suffer the death of unbelievers who have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And this is what God does in Egypt, and he saves all of them that do that. Well, here, these people are going to need to be covered by Jesus who is being killed on Passover who will become the Lamb of God. And for everybody who receives that blood and believes that Jesus died for them, 
God will pass over them and God will forgive them and God will deliver them. This here is recognized or it's shown in Barabbas' release. Barabbas is spared here. Barabbas is let go while Jesus goes to the cross. He walks away. You and I, we are both the people who put Jesus on the cross and everybody who receives Jesus' blood, we are all like Barabbas as well. We are all the ones who are spared and get to walk away free, although we are guilty. 2 Corinthians uh, 2, 5-21 basically puts it like this, He who knew no sin, Jesus who was sinless, became our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus, God places his sin on Christ, places our sin on Christ, on the cross, and yet he gives us his perfect life and the forgiveness that we deserve there. Jesus dies for our sins on the cross. Now, many of you have heard this. You know this. You believe this to be true. And so I was trying to think, like, what do we need to know? What do we need to be reminded of this morning? Right? And, and here it is, that Jesus' humiliation, that Jesus' death on the cross, right, reminds us to be humble. Right? And, and in fact, it should instill humility on all believers here. The truth is, is that you can never become a Christian without humility. Pride will keep you from becoming a Christian, and pride will keep you from living like a Christian. What I mean by that is, like, God never gives us what we deserve. What the Bible teaches here when it says the wages of sin are death, what the Bible actually teaches is that we believe that we deserve death, and yet we get life. What the Bible teaches is that we deserve wrath, and yet we get love here. And so I just want to remind us of two things this morning when we think of this in relation to our humility and our place and our stance in front of God is that God gives us what we can't earn and that's God's love here when we look at Christ on the cross. Romans 5.8 puts it this way, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I can just circle while sinners there. While sinners Christ died for you and showed his love for you. So here's the thing. Like, God doesn't look down and say, man, they're trying so hard, like, to be good. Like, they love me so much, and they're doing such a good job, but they just, they just need somebody to kind of just come down and help them out. Uh, you know, they, no. What happens here is that Jesus dies for sinners. He dies for people who aren't good. He dies for people who are in trouble. He dies for people who aren't getting it right. And he dies for people who believe that. Now, if, if you believe this, if you believe this, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, it, it, it will change you when you begin to understand God's love, right? And how your behavior lines up with all of that. Philip Yancey 
um, when he's trying to describe that God loves for sinners. He He loves people, although they do not first love him. He puts it like this. The cross teaches us that on the one hand, God loves us, and on the other hand, our behavior repulses him. And so God's love, and when we see our behavior next to it, it's this plea for us to turn from our sin. Uh, Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, who pastors in New York, he puts it like this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. So are we more flawed than we ever dared to believe? That's what the cross teaches us, that Jesus had to die for our sins. He suffered for that reason. He went through all of that for that reason. And yet we are also more loved than we ever dared to hope. Now, if you believe this, I think this would transform you and who you are. Because Jesus goes to the cross while we are still sinners, and he dies for us in that place. And that's when we come to him, is while we are still sinners. That's when we come to his love. So that means you come to Christ when you're still in sin, like when you're still stuck in sin. It means that you don't like wait to get yourself cleaned up and then come to Christ and decide to follow Christ. I think so many of us have it backwards. I'll come to Christ after I get my life in order. Like God will love me after I get my life in order. That is not true. Like God loves you now. God has died for you now where you are at. Come to him and allow him to get your life in order. Allow his love to transform you and to change you. Right here. Don't wait. Because that's not the way the gospel works. That's not the way the cross works. That's not the way God works. God loves you now where you are at. So don't put off being a part of a growth group or coming to church or being a part of a community of Christ's followers because you don't have it together. None of us have it all together. Right? And when we came here, we didn't have it all together. This is what the cross teaches us. Church, I want to remind you of that. Somebody's in your group, somebody's a part of our church, and they're struggling. They're not who you think they should be. Remember, we are told that God's kindness leads to repentance. And sometimes that is confronting people. Hey, this is not a godly lifestyle. You've committed yourself to Christ. But it's God's patience and his kindness and his love that transforms people. The second thing I want us to be reminded of this morning as we reflect on the death of Christ is Jesus does what I can't do. And this is very similar to my first point. But 1 John 7 and 9 reminds us of this. It says, Jesus, or says the, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So two things here. First, it's Jesus that cleans you up. It's Jesus that cleans you up. It's only his blood that offers forgiveness of your sins. Second, The way to be forgiven, the way to receive God's love is to confess that you are a sinner and need his help. help. God cannot clean you up unless you confess it. Here we are told that you actually remain in your sin and you remain guilty before God unless you confess that you are a sinner in need of God's grace. Here. When I was uh, a freshman in college, I ruptured my kidney. Um, I was playing football, and so I went straight from the football field after playing for about three quarters to the hospital. Um, 
I was hospitalized for just over a, a week, um, and I had laid in bed for some time, and then finally uh, a nurse came in, and she said, hey, hey, Josh, I think it's time for you to take a shower uh, and get cleaned up. And I said, you're probably right. I couldn't smell myself because I was full of morphine. Um, and she said, well, here, let me help you up and help you to the bath. I've set up a chair in there, and so um, I'll help bathe you and help clean you up and uh, get you back in bed. We'll change your sheets and all of those sorts of things. And um, I said, well, don't worry about it. I, I can do it myself. Um, just get it ready and clean my sheets and all that stuff while, while I'm taking a shower. And so, you know, I wheel, I get up off the bed and I, I wheel myself in the bathroom with my IVs and all of these things. And I, I derobe and I sit down in my chair and I kind of turn on the shower and grab my soap and I'm sitting there and um, I uh, try to wash up and I realize like this isn't working. I, every time I move like pain shoots through my body I can't really work around the cords and the IVs and all of this stuff and so I just like I have like this come to Jesus moment where I'm like what do I do? Uh, I'm like I'm sitting here in kind of my, my full glory and there's this red cord beside me, and what the nurse said before I put, went in there, she said, if you need help, you pull this red cord, and I'll come in and, and help you. And so I, I am sitting there, like, thinking, like, okay, I could just put my clothes back on, kind of dry off best I can, put my clothes back on, still probably soaking wet because I can't really dry myself off, and just get back in my bed and just lay down there and pretend like I showered. Uh, but then I realized, like, everybody can smell me, right? Um, everybody knows, is going to know whether or not I showered or not, whether or not I got cleaned up or not. And so I just sat there staring at that red cord. What am I going to do? Uh, finally, I decided to pull it. And she walks in again, uh, utterly humbled, as this nurse cleans you up washes you up. You can see everything, knew everything. I'm a young man, strong, college football player, supposed to be, right? And I am getting cleaned up by somebody else. Well, the truth is, is that some of you need that, right? There are people who have not pulled the red cord. Right? God can see everything, right? God knows where you stink. <laughs> he does, right? And you think you're hiding it from him. Uh, right? God doesn't send, Christ doesn't go to the cross unless he believed this about you, right? Uh, and some of you may be just putting off, like pulling the cord, like some of you have never come to Christ. Some of you have never admitted that you are a sinner in need of salvation, in need of grace, in need of forgiveness, in need of God's love, Right? Some of you are just unwilling to be cleaned up by God. And my encouragement this morning to you is that you would pull the cord for the first time. Uh, there are Christians in this room who, for whatever reason, you have, you've pulled the cord. Like, you are forgiven. You are loved. You, you're going to be redeemed, right? You believe that you're a sinner in need of grace. But the truth is that, like, you're stuck in a sin. You're, you're, there's something going on and God can see it and he knows it, you know it 
right? and, and it's time to allow God to clean you up. Uh, and the way that takes place is that you confess your sin to God. You give it to him. You remember. You, you reflect on what God went through for you to pay for that sin. Right? It cost him his son. It cost the father his son. It cost the son his life. This morning, we're going to respond with communion. So I'm going to ask the ushers to go ahead and come up. Um, communion is an expression of God's death on the cross. It's an expression of Jesus dying on the cross. It's a time to remember that Christ died for us, that Christ loves us, and that Christ is coming again. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward, and here's what I'm going to ask us all to do. If you have never received Jesus as Savior, if you have never admitted that you're a sinner and repented of your sin and asked Christ to come into your life and to change your life and to clean you up, uh, this is a time to do that. As a communion is in your hand and as that bread is in your hand, before we take communion, I'll give you a chance to come to Christ. Um, if you are not a Christian, right? If you're not a Christian, just let the place, just let the plate pass. That's okay. This, this is a meal for Christians who believe that they are sinners who have been saved by God. If you are a Christian, right, one of the things that we are told is to take communion in a worthy manner. And so it's to search your heart. I had to ask, right, what's going on in my life that needs to change, that I need God to change? What do I need to give God? What do I need to repent of at this moment? And so search your hearts before we take communion together, church. And some of you this morning, you just need to be reminded that you're loved. Like, Christ died for you. Although you're struggling, although your past is something that you're not proud of, like, you're forgiven. And not only are you forgiven, like, Christ chose to forgave you, forgive you. He chose to go to the cross for you because he loves you. And so some of you need to reflect on that this morning. Let me um, uh, pray for um, the communion here as it's passed out, and then we'll take it together. Uh, Father, this morning we thank you uh, for Jesus Christ. We thank you for that communion represents that your blood has been shed for us and your body broken for us. Let all of us search the depths of our heart in that place that we need to search before we take communion. And might it be eaten worthily here in a few moments. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.